We'll open up your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be starting today. And uh, we're going to focus today on the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, Him. Not an it, but Him and His relationship with us as His children. When I was in about, probably about, oh, fifth, sixth grade, I had a backyard basketball pole. How many of you guys had one of those? How many had one of those? Yeah, a bunch of us. And what happened was... About fifth, sixth grade, I don't know where my parents found the money, but they were able to blacktop a section there where we played basketball. And so people would come for miles, because that's how far my neighbor lived, um, would come for miles to play basketball at my house. But the truth is, I really didn't need them. They didn't need to be there. Because what my favorite thing to do was to play pretend basketball. Do you remember doing this, guys? And ladies, I'm sure you probably do. Oh, yeah. I was Larry Bird out there. Okay, I'm Larry Bird. Take the shot at the buzzer. Oh, he just missed. Or I could be, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, over and over for hours. I would play basketball out there. Just me and my pretend friends, okay, making the shot at the buzzer. And, of course, it misses. But, oh, we had an error. There's a foul. The, The clock is wrong. They're putting eight more seconds back on the clock. Larry Bird's got the ball. He shoots again and wins it. Yay. How many of you did that? Anybody? Anybody? Just me? Am I the only crazy person? Something about that pretend game that was just so much fun. You know, what if... What if Larry Bird, and for those that are like, you know, old like me, he was a great basketball player, okay? Or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he was another great basketball What if they would come and like live inside of me, and I would now have their ability to play basketball? I mean, that's really what I was doing out there on that court. I'm not kidding you now. For hours, I would play the final seconds of the NBA championship game when the Celtics were playing the Lakers, and Larry Bird would make the shot to win the game, or depending upon who I was at that moment, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would make the shot to win the game. Hours of pretending. Well, what if? What if that little game could be true? Oh, no, not, not some measly little game like basketball, but in the real game of life, in, in the real thing that we were called to do, to live out God's glory here on this earth as his children and to know and to love him. What if it was possible for God to somehow miraculously come and live inside of me? And operate through me so that I could live what he has called me to. I mean, what if that was possible? God living in me? Folks, it's more than possible. If you're in Christ today, it's true of you. If you have put your hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is your Savior and you're his child... The Spirit of God has come and indwelt you and is willing to fill you and control you in your life today. And if we submit our life to Him in that kind of way, it will affect every relationship that we have. As a matter of fact, you would say it would be the masterpiece life. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, and and we've been walking through this chapter all this summer. 
and seen what we have called the masterpiece life. We are the masterpiece of God. Ephesians 2.10 calls us his, we are God's workmanship. And that can be translated masterpiece. So when God saved you, he made you his masterpiece and he is working out your salvation. He is creating you and making you into an image of his son. Conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. This is his work. And we've seen in chapter 4 all this summer what that looks like. How that, how that operates. The value of the church in our relationships and the value of spiritual leaders in our lives. And the warning against the system all around us, the world system that is really directing us away from God and putting that aside and instead aligning ourselves with God's system. And at verse 25, I want to read there for a little bit. We have a few things, just as a, not as a complete list, but as a, just a summary statement of what will happen in our lives as we submit our lives to Christ and allow His Spirit to work through us. Let's read verses 25 through the end of the chapter. And I want you to look for the role of the Spirit of God in our lives. Verse 25. Therefore, Paul writes, having put away falsehood, let each of one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about his spirit, about the Holy Spirit. And what, here's, my, here's my plan for today. I want to introduce you to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I, I want to I do some teaching on what does it mean to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Theologians would call this pneumatology. That's a, that's a big word for, for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the Spirit of God that Jesus spoke of a great deal. And then we're going to transition that into how are we to live so that the Spirit of God controls us, and then a warning for how we can resist the Spirit's work in our life. So my hope is that today will be another example of a practical call to really submit our lives to Christ. The truth is, Jesus had much to say about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to have you turn in your Bible a couple of places, particularly in the Gospel of John, and see what Jesus had to say about this Spirit. 
You go all the way back to John chapter 7. You're going to need your Bible this morning. And I want you to turn with me to John chapter 7. We're going to turn to several pages in, your, in the Gospel of John. It's looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what God intended for you as His follower. So many believers, they have the total wrong idea about how we are to live out our Christian life. A totally wrong idea about what the Spirit of God is is offering to do in our lives. Jesus understood it. And even when he was on earth, he was pointing us to it. Go to John chapter 7, verse 38, and see what Jesus has here to say to us about his Spirit. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, in chapter 7, verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Reminds what we talked about last week, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We dealt with that in great deal last week. But look what Jesus said. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Folks, we've got to recognize something. Jesus had a great advantage in store for us. He promised a great deal for us as his children. It was something that prior to Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, no believer had experienced before. You are experiencing, if you are in Christ today, you are experiencing a special relationship with God that nobody prior to the ascension ever did. I think sometimes we get this idea that if I were just Moses, or if I were just Joshua, or if I were just David, or Ruth, or one of these people, that God came and like a light shined on me, like they do in all the Sunday school papers, and God would talk to me, well then I would live for God. We get this idea that if we just had that kind of moment, that I would live for God in a, in a special, unique way. Listen, that's inaccurate. Jesus said this relationship with the Spirit when he was on earth is something that's coming. It's coming. And it's here. He described it more. Turn with me to John chapter 14. Turn over a couple pages. I want you to see and feel the the enthusiasm, the excitement that Jesus had for the Spirit of God coming into our lives. John chapter 14. Look at verse 15. He says this in 14.15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Going on to verse 18. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says in 18, this is... This is on the night that he told his disciples he was going to die and leave them. Put yourself in their shoes. They've been with Jesus for three years, learning from him, learning about him, loving him, experiencing his love. And he says, I'm going to die and I'm going to ascend to be with the Father. And they're panic stricken. And he says in 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Spirit of God will come to you. 
Turn over another page, chapter 16. Look at verses 7 and, and really following. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you, in verse 7 of chapter 16 of John, nevertheless, I tell you, now listen to what Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. And by go away, he means die, resurrect, ascend. That's what he means. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus had much to say about this one who was coming. He called him another in John chapter 14. Another, meaning like himself, there will be another one. But he won't be like Jesus in that the Holy Spirit is not contained in one body. When Jesus experienced the incarnation when he was incarnated and took on flesh, he took on upon himself this human body that he will have into eternity. But the Spirit of God is not bound by any body. He indwells all of us. There's a great book called The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life by Charles Stanley. I read this book, and if you remember any part of my testimony... I read this book in 1993. I was a believer. But God was not ruling in my life. He was not ruling in my life. And the Lord started a work of, really I would say, just revival, just understanding of who He is and what His call was in my life. And one of the key elements was the relationship that I had with another man of God, more mature in Christ than me, who invited me into his life, and he said, let's read this book together. The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life by Charles Stanley. It it just really opened up my eyes. and, And here's what he said. If the Christian life was simply a matter of doing our best, there was no need for God to send the Holy Spirit to help us. I think so many Christians, they they have this idea that Christianity, it's kind of like God has given us the marching orders. He's told us the rules and regulations. And now you are to go and to do your best to live them out. You You go do your best and you go live them out now. God wound up this clock. He said, here's my rules. Now you go and you go do your very best. And so we start out on our own, we quickly experience failure, and we just say, this Christianity stuff, it's not for me. Listen, Jesus promised his spirit. Turn over a couple more pages to Acts chapter 1. This is after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We're nearing the ascension of Jesus. And I want you to notice what Jesus says to these, these big-time hitters in Christianity. We got standing in front of Jesus, people like James and John and Andrew and Peter. And there they stand. I mean, the big names, right? The guys that are just, they just, they got it all, man. They're right there. And Jesus has been with them for three years. And he's there in Jerusalem with them. And jump in that verse number four of chapter one. See what he says. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I love what Pastor Billy shared with us earlier. Water baptism, it identifies us with the work of Christ. It identifies us with with what Jesus did. The burial, the resurrection of Christ. That's what water baptism is about. You identifying with the work of Christ. But the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, it's not about just simply identifying with the work of Christ. It's about you experiencing the work of Christ in your life. This indwelling baptizing, sealing work of the Spirit of God in your life allows you and I to experience now the everyday relationship that God wants us to have with Him so we can live Spirit-led lives. That's what God intends for us to understand. So let's talk a little bit more before we get to Ephesians, a little more about this Spirit, okay? So, on the screen here, I've got three of the, of the words that are used to describe your relationship with the Spirit of God. And you need to know that all three of these things happen the moment you received Christ. The moment you received Christ, instantly now, there was a, was a regeneration, a brand new birth that happened wherever you were when you put your trust in Jesus. So do you know, you don't have to know where or when, by the way, but do you happen to know? You don't, I can't tell you the exact date when I got saved, but I know I'm in Christ today. And at that moment, John chapter 14, we just saw it. Jesus explained that the Spirit of God will come and indwell us, was the word that Jesus used. It's the word for filling up, like a cup filled with fluid, The Spirit of God comes in and dwells us. But that's not the only thing that we see that the Spirit of God does. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Now hear this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Okay, go back in your mind when you put your trust in Christ. Now, you might have been like three, okay, and so you're not going to remember it much, but there's some people here who were saved later in life. Why, there might be somebody here that hasn't saved yet. But maybe you were saved at a time when you can remember it. Do you remember when you trusted Christ for real? And all of a sudden, there was like this, this newfound just passion for God. Do you remember that? I want to tell you, I've I've been on the other side of that on occasion. I've been there when I've got to share Christ with somebody and then receive Jesus and receive the Spirit of God. And it's an incredible thing to perceive the next hours and days. They have a new passion for the Lord. They've got a passion for lost people. I remember one old man dying in the hospital who put his trust in Christ. 
He's just a matter of days or weeks from death. And you know what he wanted to do? Find my sister-in-law. I want to tell her about Jesus. An old man dying in the hospital who had rejected Christ his whole life. And now he wants to tell somebody about who Jesus is. You see, what that is, what, what that moment is, what, what that experience is, what, how the Bible describes that experience is the baptism of the Spirit. It's, it's the first time that the Spirit of God comes and indwells you. Picture water baptism, kaplunk, and back up. This is what spiritual baptism is. There's a lot of confusion about this. There's a lot of people that you might even go to some churches and they might say, have you been baptized in the Spirit? And by that, they're really asking you, have you ever spoken in tongues or given a word of prophecy or interpreted some message in tongues? Well, we need to look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Because it says, for in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. All. To be baptized in the Spirit means you put your trust in Christ and now the Spirit of God comes and indwells you. This is a momentary thing. It happens one time and it's forever. He's forever in you. So we have the indwelling, we have the baptism, and then we have the sealing. The sealing. And that's what we're going to focus on really today. Is this the sealing nature of what God does. Let's go back to Ephesians 4. Okay, and let's see here what Paul has to say about the spirit and see if we can understand this spirit life reality. Now, it's short today, but it's packed full of truth that we need to get. In verse number 30, let's just read it again. Ephesians 4, verse 30, it says this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now what we have here in verse 30 particularly, is the first of of several clear teachings that Paul is going to give us about the Spirit of God. I want you to look over a page at chapter 5, verse number 18. Now, I'm looking forward to talking about verse 18 of chapter 5 in a few weeks. But I want you to see it here. 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, Paul says, for that is debauchery. No, don't don't anybody lie to you. Drunkenness is not the will of God. Understand that. It's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I look forward to talking about this because what Paul is trying to drive us to, and he first brings it up in Ephesians 4, is you have the Spirit in Ephesians 4. You, every believer, you have the Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Spirit. Instead, be filled. So let's talk about what this means. Look at Ephesians 4. First of all, let's talk about the Spirit-led life. Really, really, a couple realities that I want to talk about, okay? First of all, you are all, we are all sealed. The sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are main, really three main places in Scripture where this sealing is, is referred to. One is here in Ephesians 4. Another, you turn back a page to Ephesians 1.13, 
where it says, In him you also, when you heard the gospel of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, that is, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, And he has put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. When you trusted Christ, God placed his seal upon you. Now, a seal is not something that we really use a whole lot anymore. It's just not something that really comes to play that often. In biblical times, it was used for basically legal documents. And you're probably aware of this. You know, the, the, the glob of wax and the seal on it. So now you know it's been... It's been it's been protected and sealed by someone with authority. Now, when you read through your Bible, you will see this idea of a seal over and over and over. Let me give you a couple of examples. When Daniel was placed in the lion's den, remember that? Nebuchadnezzar, or Darius, that is, he sealed the tomb. Now, that doesn't mean that, I don't believe that means he put a big glob of wax on it and, you know, put his ring on it. That's not what it means. It means there was some means of identifying that that this tomb has been sealed, has has been protected, is under the authority of the king. Another example you'll see where seal is referred to in your Bible is in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14. Now this one's kind of odd, but you guys are familiar with the book of Revelation. I mean, you know, the whole world seems to be flying apart. And God raises up 144,000 witnesses. Remember that? You ever read about that? There's 144,000 people who know Christ, and in the midst of the turmoil of the apocalypse, they are out witnessing for Christ. And on them, they have what? God's seal. God's seal. And what that means is that they're protected. They're his. They're identified as his people. They they come with his authority. They come with his power. And then the ultimate seal that we have in Scripture, of course, is the tomb of Jesus. When, When the authorities sealed the tomb. So what is this seal? As I've thought about it, I thought, what's what's a good illustration for, for what a seal is today? And the thing I've landed at to help us illustrate what the importance of this is my wedding ring. Okay, my wedding ring. Let me tell you about my ring. I was 19 years old. Okay? I was so poor. I had nothing but a beautiful fiance. That's all I had. We didn't have any money. So we went to the Goldsmith and Black Hardware Store, okay, in Morgantown or Cumberland. I can't remember where it was. And they had their, you know, with their pocket knives and their, you know, tobacco packets and all that kind of stuff, a display of rings. And inside, for 1995, was this gold ring. I think it might be. At least it's gold colored, okay? That was the one. We purchased it. And shortly after, in February of a certain date of 1990, okay, can't remember right now, 17, yeah, <laughs> I placed that ring on my finger. Now, it's worthless. I mean, Nancy has said to me, do you want to buy, you know, we could probably afford to buy a little better ring now. Do you? I'm like, nope. I, I, I want to be buried in this $19 ring, okay, because 
Here's what it meant. My past, in the past, I, I promised my life to her. That's in my past now. I made that decision in 1990. Presently today, I am still deciding that Nancy is my wife and I am her husband. And I am deciding that today. In the past, I made that decision. Presently, every moment, now I'm deciding that. Now I'm deciding that. Now, every moment I am deciding that I am her husband, that she is my wife. And into the future now, into the future, I am deciding now. I have decided for myself when I'm a 75, no, let's go older, 95, uh, let's go older, 105-year-old man. I don't think anybody here is older than that, okay? When I'm an old man at 105 years old, I'm deciding now that I will be her husband and she will be my wife. That's the idea of this seal. When you and I trusted Christ, listen, this is the deal. God saved you past tense. When you've trusted Christ, he saved you. But the Bible also speaks that he is saving you now. You are being saved. And look at Ephesians 4.30. Look what it says. You are sealed for a coming redemption. Your salvation is not finished yet. You are not completely saved yet. He is still saving you. Our sinfulness is so wicked, our nature is so opposed to God, that He saved us in the past, He's saving us in the present, and He's got to keep on saving us, and the Spirit of God is the promise that He'll do it. Wow! It's the guarantee Corinthians says, that he is going to finish your salvation. If God took his seal off, if God said, you know what, I saved you in the past, I saved you in the present, now from here out, I want you to take care of it, I would fail miserably and spend eternity in hell. Tomorrow, I would, today, I would fail. I would fail. His seal is a promise, a guarantee that your salvation will be completed. This is why we can hold on to some great truths. I wrote them down here because I wanted to, wanted to remind you of them. First, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to this. Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, Paul, right? Paul wrote, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, hear this word of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's not me talking, that's scripture. This is what the seal is. This takes my anxiety away. It takes my anxiety over my children or my loved ones or my wife or you away. We don't have to keep each other saved. I don't have to keep myself saved. God's spirit is working to keep me saved. 
That's his seal. You know, it's amazing the guarantee that Walmart offers. I I don't know how they're staying in business. You shouldn't do this because you cross the line into thievery. But you know, you can bring back practically anything to a Walmart, show them a receipt or not, walk in there and say, I got this somewhere, maybe at a Walmart, and they give you money back. They're guaranteed. It's ridiculous. I don't know how they stay in business. But it's nothing compared to God's. He has guaranteed. See, your salvation was never something you could earn. It was never something that you could keep. It was never something that you had to work towards. It never was that and it never will be. His spirit keeps us saved. Now I look forward to it in Ephesians 5 when talking about how do we live out this spirit-led life. But that's not where this passage goes today. It's interesting. I find it very interesting myself, just as a, you know, as a person who studies the Bible, that now what Paul is going to do, what the Spirit of God has done here, he tells us how not, how we, can, how we can resist the Spirit of God before he talks about how to live it out. I guess we need to know that. Look what it says. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy... So apparently, apparently there is a way in which we can, call, we can cause sorrow. That's what this word means. It means to weep, to have sorrow, to have sadness. That you and I in our life, it's, it, we can live in such a way that it brings sadness to the Spirit of God. See the personal nature of the Spirit. He is a he. He's not an it. He experiences grief over our life when we don't live in submission to him. And that matters to a believer. See, that matters to a believer. That's the answer to the question in Romans 6.1. What? Do we just keep on sinning so that grace will increase? By no means, no way. See, a believer is grieved when he causes grief to the Spirit of God. I remember as a teenager, when I would disobey my parents, okay, and do something stupid, okay, you know, they told me not to do it, and I did it anyway, and I can remember coming before my father and, and seeing in his face grief. And he didn't have to punish me. He didn't have to do I was That was enough. Seeing the grief on his face was enough. Remember that? That's how children are with their father. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, it would probably be nice to know how we do it then. The simple answer is sin, quite honestly. But the passage tells us. Look what the passage says. Look all around. This is how you read the Bible. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The passage tells us how we do that. It's all around it. It's all around it. How we grieve the Spirit of God is all around it. It goes all the way back to verse 25. Falsehood grieves the spirit. Angry abuse grieves the spirit. Stealing grieves the spirit. Corrupting talk grieves the spirit. Damaging talk grieves the spirit. That's all before. Then after, in verse 31, bitterness grieves the spirit. Wrath grieves the spirit. Anger, clamor, slander, malice. All these things grieve the spirit. Relationship isn't severed, 
But grief is experienced. And that matters to the believer. See, God has given us his spirit, a great advantage. And now he's saying to us, don't grieve him. Don't grieve him. Now, this will finally be completed at redemption. Let's just see that and to wrap up our passage for today. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, God's seal is on us and the Spirit of God is working in us and he's going to continue. And listen, let me just tell you, let me warn you, be warned. The time between now and your redemption is probably great. I don't know, but probably it's great. There may be many days or weeks or months or years between the day of today and the day of your redemption. And I want you to know that that life is going to come at you and it's going to have these summits and these valleys. It's just going to do this. It's it's how life operates, okay? But we got to recognize that all through that, through, the, through the, the valley and the pit of despair that comes, where the fertile soil lies, by the way, the fertile soil of, of submitting our lives to Christ in those low points, all through that, there's this, there's this stream of redemption that the Spirit of God is working. He hasn't given up on you. Respond to His Spirit Say no to the things that are laid out here. Say yes to the things that God calls us to. And live out this spirit-led life. Now, not every basket is going to go in. Doesn't always happen. But you can be sure that God is conforming you. You can have peace over this. That God is conforming you to the image of his son, into that masterpiece that he wants to make you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the truth of your word and the presence of your spirit. God, we sang about you. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just make these words, but that as we leave here today, we we would fill our hearts with your presence, Lord, through your word, through your people, And God, may we submit our lives to your spirit. Thank you for the sealing and dwelling nature of the spirit of God who has baptized us in you. And therefore, there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.